Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. You know, as someone who is 5'2 and is always shorter than all of the confirmands that we have, it's nice to hear that God can do things even with, you know, the shorter among us. Although I will say that um, I'm short because some of us stop when we hit perfection and the rest of y'all took a little bit longer. Um, Just little height humor for you. Um, Friends, our scripture today is along those lines. It's about God using the smallest, most insignificant, and even the things that um, culture might put aside to be used for greatness and to be used for God's glory and to build God's kingdom. So we're going to be in the book of Philemon, which is next to the book of Hebrews. Um, And Philemon is just one chapter. It's only 25 verses. And so we are going to read the majority of the book of Philemon. Um, This is verses 8 through 16. For this reason... Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful, both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you, I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God, let us say. Thanks be to God. It was exciting when we started our Open Door program, and I heard from Pastor Carrie Lynn and other volunteers uh, like, uh, about uh, kids like Natalia or, or her brother Nixon who were jumping right into the fray to whether it was serving people food uh, during dinner or whether it was just simply engaging in conversation with our guests for the open door. There was no fear about them. They just wanted to serve. They wanted to be a part of something that was even better is that there were adults who let them, who gave them permission, or not even gave them permission, just looked at them and said, you can do what I can do and watched Natalia and Nixon or McLean Simpson or Monroe Finley run around and serve with their full heart's desire without any, uh, any barriers in front of them. I- I'd never seen a more confident usher, actually, than Caleb Fritchie. When he first started, Caleb, I remember um, watching you for one of the first times with, like, shaking hands, taking the offering plate up to the altar and being nervous about what if I drop it or what happens if we do that. But then it was only like a few Sundays after Randy Jones and Dina Hyatt had invited him to do this that he was doing it every week. And I'll tell you, you've never seen somebody at the back who's inviting people into worship with as much confidence as Caleb Fritchie did. And the face turned 
from determination of I'm going to do the best job I can do to, yeah, I belong here, what of it? Right? Of course I belong here. And I saw the same face in various stops along my ministry path. I saw Sailor Smith in Topeka, Kansas, who was a seven-year-old, who was befriended by the 65-year-old Ms. Beverly. And Ms. Beverly said, well, I think you have a lovely voice. You, you should come sing with the adult choir. And so, without any hesitation at all, because she'd received this invitation from Ms. Beverly, Sailor Smith, at seven-year-old, started singing every Sunday with the adult choir, full robe and everything. Because Ms. Beverly looked at her and said, you can do what I can do, and believed that. I saw it in uh, Camp Bridgeport with a girl named Campbell Thoreau, who uh, was so passionate about leading worship and so passionate about singing and engaging others in that, that the college student who was paid to lead worship just started getting out of the way and letting Campbell do her thing because she was so, uh, such a tour de force of leading worship, so passionate about it, he knew she could do what he could do. And if you missed our Wednesday night online Bible study that we were doing on Facebook Live for a little bit when we invited children to come and share their favorite Bible stories, and you didn't see Cohen Patterson or Arden Les- and Kyler Lesner on there, you missed a tour de force of what confidence looks like in teaching people about the Bible. And I think it was because someone like Pastor Carrie Lynn had looked at them and said, you can do what I can do. I don't care if you have the title pastor. I don't care if you have the title mister. I don't care if you have the title in front of your name. You can do what I can do. And these stories are great and they're cute and hopefully inspiring. And they're only that way because they're abnormal. They're abnormal because normally we take children and we say, why don't you go in this other room? Why don't you worship in this other room? Why don't you kind of do things on your level? In fact, we even have kids' tables so the adults can talk. Right? And we can talk about adult things, which in some cases is appropriate. But we're usually saying, why don't you go over here? And, and right, because there's a natural gap between adults and children. Like, I don't care how great your eight-year-old is, how much of a prodigy they are in science, technology, music, or sports, you still have to drive them there legally. They still need you to keep them alive. There is a power gap, a power dynamic involved between adults and children. It's why when you fill out your taxes, they're called dependents. It is a natural gap that exists there, but Jesus also challenges it. And not necessarily the gap itself, but challenges us how to think about the gap. When the disciples are saying, no, children, get out of the way and let the adults do their thing, Jesus says, no, children, come to me. And in fact, even ups the game a little bit by saying that no, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven unless they become like one of these, like they become like this child. Jesus looks at the child and doesn't see the gap. Jesus looks at the child and says, this is someone who can lead us. This is somebody who can show us the way. This is somebody who can do what I can do. And in that we call justice. And what Paul does in the letter to Philemon is if Jesus is challenging the natural gaps in that story, Paul is taking that teaching and challenging the unnatural gaps that exist in our world. Um, and some examples of those. There was a woman in Lake Charles, Louisiana. She was a 45-year-old single mother named Ms. Clara. Ms. Clara had applied for and earned a Habitat house. So our youth group from Kansas was down in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and we were framing the house, and we were building it, you know, as part of her Habitat build. And Ms. Clara was right there alongside with us, just hammering the boards left and right, and just a joyful presence to be around. Um, and so at lunchtime, I engaged her in conversation, and, and we talked for a little while, and as we got back up to start building again, I just said, Ms. Clara, 
no one would believe that you don't belong here. You, are, uh, you look like you know what you're doing. And she said, honey, before this Habitat build, the only Arm & Hammer I knew about was the baking soda in my fridge. And, and I said, well, you would have you fooled me. And then the next breath, she turned around and she said, but don't you ever believe, don't you ever think that any man can come in here and outhammer me? Right? Which I proved her right, because I think in the very next swing, I bruised my thumb so bad um, that, that just to prove her right, I didn't do it, you know, I totally didn't do it on accident. Right? But I wonder how many groups had come in and said, don't worry, Miss Clara, we'll take care of this. You just go sit over on the side and watch us. Uh, you don't need to do what we do. We're here to save you. We're here to help you. And I think about Rodrigo, who was a 15-year-old down in Juarez, Mexico, when a church group I was on went to, uh, with Proyecto Abrigo to build these cinder block houses um, down in Mexico. And, and if we're honest with ourselves real quickly, um, every single person in that village that we were building a house for knows how to build a house better than we do at least eight times over. Out of necessity. They do things for themselves. They don't have the, con- you know, they don't have the wealth to do that. They collect, this family had been collecting resources for years in order to build this home. And so we come in, we had like a dentist, we had me, a preacher, I don't know how to build a house, right? We didn't have anybody who was actually in construction. But we walked in there and said, let us do this for you. You just sit over here and we will come in and save you with our wealth, our status, all of these things. You just sit over there and watch us. And it was kind of highlighted. So Rodrigo and his siblings were over on the side watching and, and one of the women had um, stowed uh, about five replica, um, five soccer balls. And it wasn't like cheap secondhand soccer balls. This was like after the 2010 World Cup. These were Adidas replica South Africa World Cup soccer balls that were really, really nice. And uh, so she, we pumped them up and she set them down and she was like looking at the kids like, no, you can come over here. You can come play with these. And none of the kids would move. Rodrigo and his siblings kind of like, you knew they wanted to go play soccer. You knew they wanted this brand new shiny ball, but there was this look in their eyes of like, I don't think I'm supposed to touch something that shiny. I don't think I'm worthy enough for that soccer ball. It was the same kind of attitude of like, I don't know if I'm supposed to work with those people because they seem better than me, or at least that's what they're telling me. So the woman was trying to use her motherly instincts. She was trying to give, like, use her power as a, as a mother to, you know, come on, come on, it's okay. I'm giving you permission to do this. I will let you do this. And it wasn't until this high school senior named Mark, and Mark had zero social ability, zero social cues. He was the kind of guy who just had no idea how to speak politely to people, um, had no idea how to read the room. And in this case, it was the best thing possible because the ball is sitting there. The woman is like trying to talk to a 15-year-old like a two-year-old. And he just walks over there and just slams a stunner straight at Rodrigo's chest. And Rodrigo is an accomplished soccer player on the streets of Juarez, and so he's got no choice but to deflect it with his chest, and he starts juggling the ball, naturally. Like, he's just popping it off his thighs, and he gets it down to his feet, and, and then finally traps it. And in this realization, um, uh, he kind of looks, and he's like, oh my gosh, I, was a lot, I touched it. And Mark says in Spanish back, kick it back. There was no apprehension of, well, let me give you permission to kick it back. There was no thought of, well, I'm gifting you with the ability to play soccer with me. It was simply looking at this kid and saying, you're just another person to kick the ball with. Kick it back. And I wonder how many other groups had gone into Juarez and kids like Rodrigo, and they've kind of patted him on the head and said, you just kind of sit over here while we do our thing. I wonder how many people had looked beyond the economics, looked beyond the poverty, looked beyond the race, and, and said, there's another person to kick the ball with. 
And this is what Paul wants Philemon to recognize in Onesimus. We don't know why Onesimus is in prison. What we do know is that he's a slave. And regardless of what you, there have been explanations about slavery in the Roman world that have tried to like justify it, like, oh, they were just indentured servants in households. That's not true. There were slave auctions just the same as there were in South Carolina or Alabama in the Roman world. This is a bad situation where there is a huge unnatural power dynamic to where one human owns another human. And, and there are different theories about why Onesimus is in prison with Paul. Um, some say that, like in the Philippian uh, letter to the Philippians, the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to Paul to keep him comfort and to give him gifts while he was in prison as like a companion. And so there's a thought that maybe Philemon sent Onesimus, his slave, to be Paul's companion in prison. But even if that is the case, even if it is a mission of goodwill, how, how much can it be your goodwill if you're forced to do it? And Paul throws that argument back at Philemon in the passage it was read. It's like, I don't want to compel you to do anything. I want it to be your decision, knowing perhaps that Philemon compelled Onesimus to go and do the goodwill work for him. I mean, how good can it be if it's not really your choice? And then option two is that Onesimus was actually a slave who ran away and got caught and got put in prison. And now we're going from the just power gap dynamics between Onesimus and Philemon to, you know what happens to slaves when they run away and they get returned to their masters? There's punishment involved. And we have to dig into the psychology of, like, how can one human actually feel justified punishing another human being? There was an episode of Grey's Anatomy uh, years back that um, uh, there was an active shooter situation in the hospital. And one of the medical residents is running away, but the shooter's bearing down on her. And all of a sudden, she just starts rattling off her name and her siblings' names and where they were born and when they were born. And she has a cat and, and all sorts of different things to help the, to force the shooter to see her as a person because a person cannot harm another person that they see as their equal. But they did studies during the Holocaust or around the, the, the psychology of the Holocaust and found that if a group of people or a person sees the, uh, another group of people or another person as naturally inferior to them, then the punishment becomes more of a lesson. It becomes more of a favor to the other group of people. And so whatever punishment they dole out is actually a lesson. It's a favor. It's a good thing in the mind of the, the person who sees themselves as superior. And so let's go back to children. When we discipline our children, how many of y'all have either said or heard the words, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? There was a lot more in the last service, right? It may be a generational thing. That's not true. It, it does hurt our souls to punish our children and give them consequences, yes, because we want all the nice and best things for them. But it's not true because if you're levying a discipline upon your child, you have already justified in your mind that you have the power to do that. You have already said that I am doing this for their good. I am doing this to teach them a lesson. And so you have already felt good about what you are doing for the sake of their sake. When all that child knows is they're being punished. And Proverbs and everybody talk about we should train children the right way. I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences for their action, but Jesus does come in and challenge the power dynamic and say, if the little children are coming to me, if we're supposed to inherit the kingdom like little children, we at least need to think about why that gap exists and how we fill that gap with grace and love. And Paul is challenging us to do the same thing in the unnatural gaps of Philemon and Onesimus. Because remember, Onesimus has accepted Christ in the jail cell. Philemon, Paul says, is a good Christian man, a good Christian man who owns slaves, but a good Christian man. 
And I don't know if we recognize how radical the words of Galatians 3.28 are. When Paul says to the Galatian church, in Christ there is no slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, nor Jew, nor Greek. Your identity is found in Christ. And so in this experience that Paul had, that Onesimus has with Paul in prison, that has with Christ through Paul, Onesimus is claiming identity in Christ, which is what Philemon has also claimed, identity in Christ. And so theoretically, there should be no more slave nor free. There should be no more male nor female. Surely they could see each other as God sees them as children redeemed by Christ on par with each other, but have you ever tried to change a relationship or change your worldview about somebody that drastically? I'll take you back to 1865. The Civil War is over. The Emancipation Proclamation has been issued. Thirteenth Amendment is coming. And 14 or 4 million people all over the country, not just the South, 4 million people are finally are in the workforce. And, and think about how that transition has to happen. They have to go from being uh, oppressed and property to now they see themselves as free. They've been given freedom. Theoretically, in the law, they're supposed to be some sort of equal, but at the same time, they still have to depend upon the people who actually have resources to pay them. So there's still the, the power gap that exists. And then on the other side of things, Say you're a kid growing up during that time, and the only relationship you've ever had with a slave is that you own this person. And now you're being asked to change your worldview radically to say that they are not property anymore, they're actually a person. Right? Which is totally 100% the Christ-like thing to do, that it is sinful to look at somebody as a piece of property, or sinful to look at another human being as a lesser version of you or a lesser version of anything. It's completely sinful. But to make that worldview in an instant is difficult. And in fact, it wasn't handled well during Reconstruction at all or throughout the rest of the next 150 years. And 150 years later, we're still dealing with the fallout and still dealing with the consequence of people not being able to shape their worldview or change their worldview, change the status of their relationship, change the way that they view people. They st- we still haven't gotten to the point where we can't look at somebody and say, you're a Jew and I'm a Greek. We still haven't gotten to the point where we can say you're a male and I'm a female. We still can't look. And those, look, those differences exist in terms of the human-made barriers that we have put there. What Paul hopes for Philemon, what he hopes for Onesimus, what he really hopes for Philemon is that Philemon has done the hard work within his own soul that when Onesimus comes home, that he's welcomed as a brother and not as a servant. I have this I've been reading Philemon like a hundred times this week, and then there's all sorts of different messages that come out of this really short book, right? Big things come in small packages. And the image just comes to my mind of, well, how did Paul, or how did Onesimus actually trust Paul? Right? If his experience with, with Roman people, perhaps, has been Philemon, and then Paul is just this other Roman guy who comes in and is like, well, let me tell you all the answers, right? How, how does he trust that interaction and so the thing that it just popped in my head, I have no textual evidence for this, I have no historical evidence for this, but the thing that popped in my head was, I wonder if Paul had, um, through his experiences with Peter and James, heard this story of Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus, this master of 12 disciples, and, and obviously more who were following along with him. Jesus, this one who Peter says, you are the Lord, the Savior, the Master. Jesus, the Lord of life, um, takes off his robe and puts on a towel and washes his disciples' feet, which was a job that a slave would do. 
job a servant would do. And, and in that tells the disciples, I, I believe you can do what I can do. I am a servant with you because I have called you friend. And I just wonder if Paul earned Onesimus' trust by getting down on his knees. And Paul didn't tell him all the answers. I wonder if Paul showed him trust by washing Onesimus' feet and showed him that I, Paul, this legendary figure, am just a servant alongside you. That's the big difference when we're talking about mission work, when we're talking about justice work, when we're talking about our relations, when we're talking about inclusion, when we're talking about welcoming, when we're talking about all of these different things. There's a big difference between doing mission to somebody, like going to Juarez and saying, here, you just sit on the side while we fix all your problems, versus doing mission with people and asking them, hey, what do you think the answer to your problems are? How can we help you to develop a solution together? I'm good at this, you're good at this. How do we put those things into action together to where I can appreciate everything you bring to the table and you can appreciate everything I bring to the table and instead of seeing the differences between us, instead we just see the end goal. We see our identity in Christ working toward the sanctification of our world. We're very guilty of doing mission too often. We're very uh, guilty of even talking too often. We're very guilty of framing ourselves in power dynamics instead where Christ lowers himself from his high and mighty place and says, let's do this together. And what Paul hopes for Onesimus is that he can go back to his former master, somebody who has the privilege, somebody who has the authority, somebody who has the legal right, and does the hard work of wiping all those things away to say, all I care about is that you are my brother in Christ and that we see each other as equals. We see each other as co-laborers in the vineyard. We see each other as part of the body of Christ and that is why when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, there is no gift that is above another gift. You may have this expertise in this and people need to listen to you, but it is no more important than the person who sweeps the stairs because that is their gift. What I think Paul is trying to tell Philemon in this letter is what Jesus tells the disciples when they're talking to the children is that any distinction we make in this world is simply that, is something we made. Right? We can say that great things come in small packages because we define the shape of the package. And I wonder if we start getting to the point where we trust that God has created that package. And it's not the size that matters, it's not the color that matters, it's not the shape that matters. But it is that God has created that package. God has created that person. God has created and gifted that person. And I wonder if we can get to the point where there is no more slave nor free, nor Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female, because, because we've done the hard work of knowing that the only identity is in Christ Jesus. And friends, I, I need to tell you, in the letter to Philemon, Paul is not asking Onesimus to do the hard work. Onesimus did the hard work by sitting in prison and being a slave. Paul is asking Philemon to do the hard work that when Onesimus comes back to him, Philemon doesn't jump back into old patterns of saying, well, slave do this, slave do that. Here, let me fix this for you. Philemon receives Onesimus back and says, what can we do together? How can we be partners? How can we be servants together? Let me wash your feet, and I will let you wash mine. 150 years later from 1865, hundreds of years later from when 
Um, Chinese workers came over to work on the railroad. We're still not there yet. But in every song that we sang today, in every prayer that we lifted up, we exalted the risen Christ who Paul says in Romans 3 that none of us have lived up to the glory of that risen Christ. None of us have lived up to the glory of God, but in Romans 8, no one is outside of the love of that risen Christ. So we have the language. It's whether or not we have the mindset and the willingness to go and wash the feet of those who we think ought to wash ours. Can we pray? Precious God, we confess that we have not always been your servants. We confess that we have often hoped people would serve us. We confess that we have not always loved our neighbor as ourselves. And Lord God, we confess that when we have done that, we have not listened to you or made you the Lord of our life. Help us to when we say, Lord, Lord, not to forget the kingdom versus our own salvation. Help us, Lord, to recognize the Christ in others as they recognize the Christ in me. And send us out in the world, God, with good news. Good news that we share alongside and work alongside those whom we might rather ignore. So that we all might sit at the kingdom table of God together, giftedness lifted up and utilized for the perfection of this world. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.